it's like building good habits. And then when the growth does come, hopefully those habits stay, you know, and surely it breeds simplicity. So yes, you have to change, but I really believe you can get great outcomes. And I think every technology leader is actually served by at least one or two periods of like resource constraint because it gives an opportunity to like get your tech, your manager, your tech manager, your product managers, and your stakeholders into a mindset of like, hey, we should, these are real dollars. If you're a tech leader looking to learn today's best practices for leading high-functioning teams, you're in the right spot. In each episode, we learn from today's top tech leaders as they share their successes, their failures, and their lessons learned along the way. I'm Debbie Madden, and this is the Scaling Tech Podcast, your blueprint for scaling tech teams. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. Today, we are talking with Rob Wisniewski. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Hey, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. Um, so we're talking about an interesting topic today, how to balance technical proficiency with stakeholder goals. And before we jump in, I'm going to tell everyone a little bit about Rob. So Rob is currently a managing director in the Blackstone Technology and Innovations Group, and you serve as the firm's chief software architect, as well as a chief technology officer of client and firm-wide platforms. And in addition... Before joining Blackstone, he served as a CTO at Clear, building a technical delivery org focused around biometric identity and security that many folks see at airports and, and stadiums around the country. Um, and then prior to Clear, you were a VP of Eng at Symphony Communications, where you delivered end-to-end secure and compliant messaging systems for financial services companies. And so all this to say, you've worked at a variety of tech leadership roles in multiple industries at various stages of companies, which is relevant to this conversation. And most recently, over the last three years, Blackstone, which is a scaled enterprise. Um, and so how in all of your positions have you na- navigated this like really delicate and also critical task of balancing technical proficiencies of the teams you've been responsible for with the stakeholder goals. So let's start there and then we'll drill into some details as we go. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess the short answer might be sometimes poorly, um, <laughs> but, but uh, I, I believe that, you know, I've been able to uh, start to build some reflexes and maybe even get to a point where I, I, uh, we're getting pretty good at it. Um, you know, you might add to some of this, we, we stopped at, at a certain level of the pedigree, but at some point I was, I built a retail trading site at a company called Peak Six in Chicago. That was like a startup within a larger company. So even more sort of complexity. Um, and then before that was just kind of doing stuff at IBM as a, you know, hands-on engineer. So um, a lot of variety, everything from like, it's a big company, but there's a startup in it to it's like the first day of a new startup to it's the eighth year of a company that's being a startup. And then place like Blackstone where, um, you know, very, very scaled, but, you know, looking to reinvent itself from a technology perspective. Um, yeah. Clearly, you know, the, in the end, you know, why is this important? It's because, you know, we are creating technology for profit. You know, I kind of say that to a lot of, um, you know, new junior folks or interns or whatever. There's a big difference between create, creating technology to see it exist and creating technology to create value for some purpose, right? Be it even a nonprofit, but we're creating it for some value. And that means that there's somebody asking for it. It might be the founder's dream. It might be your own dream. Um, but eventually you need to balance that dream and what needs to be done with the ability to do it. 
Um, I think there, there are a lot of examples of really great technologists, just amazing thinkers that just really cannot land the value because they might be so dogmatic in their implementation of something or just obsessed with like, it must be right, this sort of that, you know, perfect enemy of the good type mentality or always chasing that next, you know, blog entry or that next interesting thing, right? That just aren't really suited to like, I am here to create value for this purpose. On the other side, you've got a lot of really great purposes, and I'm sure we've all run into this, where we don't know how to scale it because we didn't have that early technical proficiency or how many of these things, you know, the classic, okay, well, now we have to rewrite the prototype that got us the money and now we need to really build it for real. So I think um, it, it's critical, um, you know, especially as resources get scarce, it's critical to to find that balance, to be able to create value, um, to, to land... Um, you know, ROI, return on investment, for lack of a better term, um, but also do it in a way that you're not going to disappoint people in the future when they want to say, okay, now do it by 10, now do it by 100 and um, and then be correct in that or do it sustainably with costs in the cloud or something like that. So that balance is extremely important. Right. Yeah. And important in all of these gold posts that you just described or implied are constantly moving. The stakeholders, their priorities, the external conditions, the internal demands, and so you're navigating through these changing waters, and and so so what what have you seen work best across all of your roles over time? You know, um, it, it's kind of I think I've mentioned this to you before in our conversations. I, I there is definitely something that you know people that have said, "Hey, come work for us," know me for, and it's for this sort of scaling period, right? Taking it from we're We've got something, we've got some revenue coming in, Blackstone clearly plenty, but, but we, we've got this capability, but we want to make that capability efficient and scale. We want to add more to it and see it happen faster. Um, and I, I never intended for that to be like my specialty, but it's definitely been something that when you do it four or five times and three, five, three to five years each time, you're like, okay, I've, I've spent a lot of time on this. Um, and one thing that keeps coming up for me, and this is something that was not on my radar for probably the first decade of my career was product management and the discipline of management and and how product management really is that liaison between the sort of the scalable maintainable measurable creation of a capability um and the the sort of getting people on board the the salespersonship of the whole thing um and sort of that discipline when i first started ibm i didn't have any concept of a product manager like that was so big that I, we probably had them i don't know if i met them um, i just kind of knew we just kind of magically knew what we had to build you probably had um, at IBM. Yeah, I'm sure they did. But but it, it might have been called that, right? I mean, I left right, IBM. Right. And, um, and then, you know, kind of getting into the financial aspect of it, they were just like more pragmatic. You know, we were building a retail, web, this is a company called Options House. We were building a retail website, a retail options trading website within a larger prop trading company. Um, we ended up very successful, but they were, you know, they were themselves were learning what it meant to not just have engineers sitting next to traders, like put the button here because I click it a lot type interactions. And now we have customers and we have to get them to like greater wallet share and greater trading share and payment for overflow, which has become a big thing. Like, what does all that mean to the strategy of the company? We actually needed that. So we kind of, that was, I didn't realize it at the time, but we were building this concept of product management, not from scratch, but for us. Right. Um, and then, you know, got up to uh, Symphony. Symphony, the blessing there was I was kind of jumping in with a bunch of ex-Microsoft execs, ex-Thompson Reuters, ex-Skype execs. Now they knew this stuff, like, dead to rights. I mean, 
the CEO of Symphony would have considered himself. He's a great engineer, but would have considered himself first and foremost, I think, a product manager. So I learned a lot there and sort of establishing that then at Clear and, and, and beyond. And so like what I've realized is that connection is all in the product management. Now, does that mean that there's this like discipline of product management that is like, you know, right there with engineering? Yes, but it doesn't mean it's siloed. The best product manager I've ever worked with, you know, are, are probably ex-engineers. Maybe that's because I'm an ex-engineer or I like to think I'm still an engineer, but, you know, go point to the code I've written recently. But um, they, they're great, right? Because they have this context. Now, vice versa, um, I've had some really interesting projects in my career where we just threw the playbook out the window and said, rather than build an application for these business users, why don't we just teach them something? So when I was at Peak Six, we built an actual programming language that they used in order to create their sort of intelligence views. And here, you know, we we definitely push out like Python. We we definitely will will teach Python to business users, right? So then those people become product managers, right? I mean, there's definitely product managers that used to just be like, yeah, I was a physicist or I was, you know, a salesperson or whatever. And I was uh, super into coding. I did a boot camp, and, and now they have that vocabulary. So, so much of it is vocabulary, right? So for me, um, it's about finding that product management discipline, um, really putting time effort into like your version of it and making sure that there's transparency with the stakeholders via that function. Yeah. Um, like I say a lot more, on it, but that's, that's the guts. Yeah, and I'm wondering as you're talking about the value of of you didn't explicitly state this, but of of your relationship with the product management person and team as the the CTO and other adjacent roles. Um, I'm assuming, but I'll ask: Is it also as as important for the stakeholders that are maybe the 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 founders, the CEOs, the COO, um, to also have that relationship? with the product folks. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there's there's a there's one nuance there. First off, I'll say I've operated where product management reports to technology. I've operated where there's a chief product officer and they're adjacent. Um, I was wondering about that. Okay. Yeah, that, that's not, you know, all of it can work. I think that's a cultural okay. sort of like a choice, you know, um, yeah. really for me, the choice was if I were to hire, a chief, if I were to have the CEO that I'm reporting to, I'd be in a CTO role or something hire a chief product officer, would I want to inflict that CEO on that chief product officer, right? That's kind of, that's how I start to, um, right. that choice. But I think there, there's there's a good way to, to deal with all of it. But um, when it comes to that relationship, um, it's clearly very important for product to have it like a, like you need to teach your stakeholders. One of the things that we talk about a lot is, is that sophistication, stakeholder sophistication, or doing an agile transformation or an agile adoption. I mean, I'm not a dogmatic agile person, but I do understand that that is the modern way that we sort of operate this sort of iterative approach. One of the things I talk about is like kind of the easy part is the tickets and the scrums and the ceremonies and the planning poker. And that that's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is the cultural shift, the product management discipline, the stakeholder sophistication. Um, you walk into these situations where stakeholders have sort of both been underserved and overserved, where they're underserved in the sense that when they ask for something, they're like, oh yeah, cool, we'll go work on that. And then technology is out there just trying to figure out the thing that they're supposed to build. But then they're overserved in the sense that they're like kind of spoiled in that. And they're not used to like, no, come in two weeks. You need to see what we came up with, right? Come tell us what needs to be changed, help us prioritize. So um, where in the classic sense of the product manager owning the roadmap and owning the priorities, like those are only a reflection of what the stakeholders have told them is important for their, their part of their job. 
um, talk a lot about, you know, the process is owned by the stakeholders. For instance, we have accountants as stakeholders. Like I, I might have technologists that could be accountants. They might know stuff that just seems to be even more than the accountants. But in the end, the healthy version of this is if we were running this accounting system on pen and paper, that's with the accountants. We automate it. Now we are a good safety net, a sanity check, you know, a creative like, hey, what if you have you thought about this? Um, but it's extremely important that the stakeholder owns their process and we automate it. Now, the nuance I talked about is you can be in a company, you know, a company like Blackstone runs a process, right? They invest money, they, you know, uh, go buy things and try to make those things more valuable. Um, company, other companies build products to sell. So in my case, all my stakeholders are here. I, that's a luxury. That's a luxury you got to look into. My the people that need to be serviced are people that also work with me. If you're selling something, those people are customers. You're trying to convince them to buy your product, keep with your product, expand your use of your product. Um, that is where then you're talking about COOs and chief marketing officers and 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 you know the CEO and their vision and and you know, the board and, and whatnot, those are the people that you're trying to say, Hey, listen, this, I believe is the product that you've described you want to sell, um, versus a, a process where those stakeholders might be like, you two all need to go figure out how to make my vision, which is operating this process more efficient. Right. Um, so it's a little bit different, but the stakeholder connection to that product is just like, I mean, it's kind of the first step to, to really yeah, get yeah. real. And it's interesting because it, it may seem like a given or an obvious thing, but uh, you know, you and I have both seen it's not always right. It's, it doesn't always exist that 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 critical relationship. Um, or as you said earlier, and I've been in teams like this too, where like the product role is um, is not even present. Um, and it's an interesting. It's such an interesting um, discipline. You know, even how folks come out of you know undergrad and graduate programs to become product managers is very different than how you know, kids have been coding since they've been, you know, little. And I don't know anyone that was a, a lot of them. They, yeah. We, we, I mean, I've definitely hired product managers out of school, right, like their right. capabilities, but right. like, it always intrigues me. Like, what about that made you interested? Because for me, it kind of comes from another angle. It's like, I just got, so, I was building stuff and I just got so sick of having people ask me for stuff poorly that I became the person asking right. or vice versa. It was like, I just need this stuff and I need to figure out how to talk to you. And I like, so you get these great, huge, ultra, like huge product management sort of leaders and thought leaders that are visionary, but they came in and now you got these people like, no, like this is a really cool role. And you know, like the fan companies have definitely put product management on the map, no question. But I do think there's always that, like what motivates you, right? What's that thing that like pushed you into like why I do this every day. So like there are definitely technologists. I might even be one of them. That's like, wow, that's just a hard problem I want to solve with technology. I'd be other people on product that are like, I really don't care what the product is. I like taking this amorphous right. ask that nobody knows how to solve and breaking it into pieces and getting these very eclectic group of engineers and this, you know, very, you know, sorry, this, this, this population of builders that have their own idiosyncrasies and connecting them, maybe that's the passion. That's cool yeah. too. Like yeah. it's interesting to see that all play out, and that's all within the last ten years. Yeah, no, it's it. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so shifting shifting a little bit, um, you we've been talking about um, different roles and and um, ensuring that you balance right the priorities of the stakeholders, whether they're internal and external. So what happens when 
stakeholder priorities conflict? Um, how how do you now? How have you seen um, personally or with teams navigate that? Because that happens all the time. In either knowingly or unknowingly, sometimes uh, stakeholders aren't aware yeah. <laughs> that their that their needs and priorities conflict, and sometimes they are. Yeah. Um, so how do you navigate that? I mean, you know, so again, coming from a situation where I would love everything to just be data driven and pragmatic. And, you know, I've had, you have had, you know, very senior technology folks on my teams that are like, all ROI should boil down to dollars. And you can come up with like formulas, right? You can say like, well, if it's about avoiding risk, then it's like the probability of that risk times the penalties and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, I, eventually in a sort of an enterprise or a company, you know, you might want to model it as dollars, but eventually this is the human side, right? This is the um, you know, and, and, you know, like it or not, as you sort of scale up your effectiveness as a technology producing organization, you become much more human and therapy driven than you do technology driven. Like, and, and so part of that is this stakeholder management. Now, one thing that I continue to have to remind myself about, or even just learn every single day, like it happened, you know, in the last year where we had this like really, so you got this like, well, our customers can't be bothered to like, you know, be impacted in this way. Like we need, we, we, we can't have them do this. And then of course, security and audits, yeah, we need to protect things, right? I mean, you can generalize this to anything. And we were, for, for a long time, we were like, okay, what's the perfect solution that'll make the customer advocates happy and make the security and audit and compliance advocates happy? And we're like, just get them in the room, right? I mean, eventually this is a problem that we're all humans and we should solve. So like, I have to be reminded constantly that like the job isn't necessarily to do magic or to be a hero. The job is to get the best approximation of the solution that you can come up with, with the people you have and the skill and the budget and time and present that. Um, again, if you've worked on that stakeholder sophistication, they will have understood their uh, complicit, the, how complicit they are in, in understanding that and helping come to that. And then if you really can't connect those dots, it's kind of about bringing everybody together, handing handing the solution over to them and saying, this is the best that we think we can get to. We need to come to an agreement. Uh, and and eventually there's a decider, right? That's kind of the point of a command and control structure like we have in most corporations. Now, um, the one interesting uh, piece to that though is you need to be right often <laughs> about, is this the best? Like when I, when I tell a lot of my engineers, I was like, listen, if you tell me something doesn't fit in the roadmap, I'm not expecting, again, like energy from vacuum. I'm not expecting blood from the stone, but I am expecting that when I go to a senior stakeholder, that 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 sort of assert that that statement doesn't fold like wet paper, right? Like you have to be right often. You're very perfect, but like if we keep going to the stakeholders, like, well, why don't you just do it this way? And they're right. That's when we start to like have. That's the technology role in that. It's first find the pieces, and then as we escalate, make sure that your assessment of the situation is close. You're like really close, right? Yeah. And then you'll gain that respect, and then they'll start saying like, "Well, listen, if you know, if if Rob's team says it can't fit, like I trust it can't fit. Right. We've gone right. through this enough times, and then you actually don't have those fights as often, or they're picking up the phone with each other. So that's an example of like when things don't line up, there's always an escalation. Eventually, somebody has to decide. But you only want to escalate when things are both like civil and correct and documented yep. and thought through. And then hopefully it doesn't fall over under scrutiny. That's the other big thing that I asked. Right, right, right. No, I, I, I really I really like that 
what you're describing is a cultural norm, right? Yep. This is this is how we want to communicate as a technology team, and that's part yep. of our culture. And we don't have to be perfect, but this is what we strive for, and this is how we uh, build that trust and enable our team to to get that work done and 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 get the technical side of what's feasible possible. Um, while ensuring that, like you said, the stakeholders are complicit and educated and have a voice and all of those things. So I really, I really like that cultural norm. Um, and I think it's, I think it's probably, uh, undervalued in, in some teams. And I saw, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up. Yeah. Um, so, so switching to kind of what, what doesn't work or what fails or what mistakes have you seen? Like, what can you share again? with your, you know, over, over the years, different companies, different roles, um, whether current or, or past, but what, what have you seen either, you know, um, come back to bite teams or mistakes in the making? <laughs> uh, well, long, uh, I don't know that? if we have time, but no, no. Um, you know, listen, it's the best way to learn. And like, uh, you know, we, we, you know, for instance, one thing I love to institute and, and we've done it is incident reviews. I think incident reviews are an important piece and you kind of make it a celebration be like, Hey, something broke. Tell me what broke and tell me what happened, you know, and you kind of de, you know, de-vilify the process of things sort of breaking. Now I wouldn't go as far as like move fast and break things. But what I would say is like, you shouldn't have people afraid to talk about it. Otherwise we hide things and whatever. But, um, the, you know, I actually, and I swear this is not a plug for you, or I swear, I just happened to be that when you talk to me about this question, I'm like, you know, one of the best examples is actually something Stride helped me sort of um, unravel. And so there was a, you know, I won't get into too many details, but there was a long, there was this sort of established platform, right? And this established platform did some work in order to verify, you know, who people were. And we had this this desire to like, add a new perspective to that. In this case, it was, you know, a new channel for, for these, um, th these ascertain ascertainments of risk to come in. And I was like, okay, well, listen, the way we have to do this, of course, is we have to build that capability into the core platform. And then once that capability is in the core platform, then we'll build the new avenues for this new information to come in. And that means, okay, now I'm going to, the core platform team, they're fully, fully like, you know, what do you want to do? I'm asking stakeholders to make these like, oh, if you want the new thing, you got to slow down the old thing or slow down the tech debt and all this kind of stuff. There's one product manager, like we were building this mobile app um, that was supposed to sort of integrate into this other more classical sort of system. He's like, if I just had the mobile engineers and I had like, I could just like experiment with the new capabilities on verification and all this kind of stuff, I could just vertically integrate this. I could get the experiment. I'm like, that's not how we do these. Like, what We're going to run two of these verification systems. And I was actually pretty like, I thought I was very like in the norm here um, as far as like, no, you build the capability that you build on it. But what, you know, as this played out, it turned out that like there was a lot of stuff we didn't know. And I was inserting months and months and months of delay to even understanding that those experiments needed to be had. Like if you think about mobile app, like all the interactions and all the different versions of this mobile app and Android and iOS and blah, blah, blah. Like those are experiments I was preventing because I was like, we need to build this core platform capability first. And he actually said, he's like, I really think he said, I really think we can do this. And then what was interesting is somebody said, stop, like, why don't you just give it an external opinion? And as it happened, we had some folks from Stride that were working with us. And as it happened, somebody's like, hey, we could do a, an organizational assessment on this and just kind of dig in on it. And I'm like, great. 
put this product manager in his place. It'll be cool. They'll understand this is about core capabilities and evolving the platform. And and yeah, as it came back, they were like, you know, what you could have done is you could have said, you will distract this organization for years if this all builds up and then you never use that capability because some other aspect of market viability, and you can imagine a hundred things that might not work, but you delete all that. But what if you would have just said, no, build this pocket, build this other system, and then do what you can to connect those systems at the data level, you know, just insert the conclusions into the core data, but then like mark it so that you can get back, you know, pull back from it later. And they're like, that's tech debt, but that's great tech debt because then in the course of like one quarter, if you can get the answers to the leadership of whether this thing is even worth pursuing, then you avoid all this other future stuff. So that was a situation where I was really felt like I was on this sort of basis, you know, and I'm sure there are situations where there's like these systems that can't be bothered to do it. But in that case, um, and it happened to be sort of an external evaluation, um, sort of organizational evaluation. They were, I, they kind of showed me. And, I, and as it turned out, in the time we did that evaluation, I started to see the red flags pop up about, hey, maybe people be able to take their pictures with this app or maybe people <laughs> and i was like you know what those are things that like all of the greens turned red and i'm like man if we would have started this six months ago i'd be in a lot less hot water right now so that's an example of something that i think there's great tech debt i, I you know i say this all the time now i'm like we need to get out of the way of our own experiments and so when we're looking at financial process automation which we do a lot of yeah, there's definitely like these big, huge accounting systems that need to be connected and via the data lake and all this kind of stuff. And there's some group of accountants somewhere that are doing things manually in Excel. And I'm like, great. Well, once these big systems are integrated and everything works, we'll uplift your thing. And people are like, well, but do they even know how to automate those things? So we've gone towards things like, hey, let's just RPA this thing real quick. Let's do robotic process automation. Let's just you know, get the data moving, even if there's still a manual step at the beginning and a manual step at the end, but we automate the middle, see if that works, get it on the ground, get the feedback, refine it. And then that acts as a specification for the big system, right? And that's that's yeah. one of my favorite things now is like, I'm the first one, if somebody like describes a manual process, I'm the first one to say, you know what, build it in Excel for me. Because two things, first off, you now have it automated. And secondly, that's the best specification any of my engineers can get is handing Excel file with the code tested, you know, the code and with the formulas and stuff, the edge cases or whatever, the RPA, that robotic process automation, if you're using Automate Anywhere or, you know, user testing or whatever, what better spec is there for an engineer than like a scripted set of like download file from here, copy this, move this check this, you know, it's a great specification. And while we're sitting here trying to put it into our roadmap, it's out there being used in anger in production. Right. People's lives are better, you know, right. you take the pressure off of it. So just different examples of things where these mistakes, whereas like, hey, there's this big, huge thing that just needs to be changed before we bother with this. Like I say bother with that stuff, you know, like get the experiments out there, relieve the pressure on yourself. Um, it's And it goes all the way back to like ring fence, you know, ring fence, the old tech debt and then build stuff on top of it, let the organization evolve and then, you know, replace internally. So like these are just new applications of old ideas. Yeah, no, but I but I love I love that story and the the concepts within it can be applied across yeah, across industry. And so thank you for that. Um so I, I wanna I wanna end with one um one last question. And so a lot of what you've been talking about today has to do with um 
best practices and philosophies that you've built up over time. And during that time, there's been different economic conditions, right? And and right now, 2023, we happen to be in a, you know, um, an economic conditions that, you know, many um, teams that are building technology for stakeholders are finding the the priorities um, um, externally have, have shifted significantly from grow as fast as possible to really focusing on profit more than they had been over the last year, right? Like you said at the beginning, there's always ROI. Um, you, you have to understand the value of what you're building. So so as these greater economic conditions are shifting underneath all of us, like has like and, and as you've seen these in past cycles, because you know, these cycles have happened before, they'll happen again. Um, like does your approach changed? Has your approach changed? Or are these are these um uh, philosophies and tactics and approaches kind of um, without regard for these economic shifts. No. Where's your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think they definitely have to change. I mean, the realities are that, you know, whether you're in a publicly traded company where you have to like record all these things down to the letter or whether you're in like a, where's my next paycheck, you know, coming from deal driven startup um or anywhere in between like it has to change right you you have to understand how to use resources more efficiently but i think maybe the more unpopular opinion on this might be though that i i, I enjoy it right I, I think and i don't mean because it's like a puzzle i mean i truly believe you get a better outcome under constraint and that's yeah. that's not a new concept right um you know, there's definitely situations and I'm not speaking about any particular, you know, team or company or whatever, but there's definitely situations I mean, you see it in the news now with big companies, right? Where they're like, we could cut 30% of our people and probably get the same result. And like, listen, I don't, I don't know anybody's in a specific situation, but I've been through enough belt tightening to know that it's very hard to show what part of the roadmap fell off when we found that the money to grow wasn't there, right? It's very hard to see that. I think there's, um, situations where you can get a lot more. And I don't mean, again, it's not everybody crunching on the weekends or whatever. I think it's about, and it gets back to the stakeholder relationship. Um, one of the things that that I really value about like the situation we're in now is the stakeholders are just more cognizant of like, well, I understand, you know, we're not going to go hire a ton of people right now. You know, we're going to be, or, or the our conversation on ROI is going to go all the way up to the top. Right. And that's been in every role where you know, when things are really constrained or or you, you actually get sort of creativity or you get simplicity maybe is the best way to say it. I've been in exercises where there's like 150 projects that are all being worked on, right? And first off, I doubt that was true. But secondly, like it forced us to say like, well, if you're not seeing them move forward, it may or may not be because we can't hire new people. Maybe we should look at the projects. And you go, you know, just put them on hold or kind of put them over here or say, hey, what's our real, you know, have that offsite. Right? What's the real thing that we have to focus on with the resources we have? And it accelerates that stakeholder sophistication we talked about. It accelerates sort of the engineering creativity. It accelerates the product manager focus on ROI. Like if I'm going to have to point to the hours saved or point to the revenue generated or point to like, I better be right, you know, and vice versa, pushing that back on the stakeholders and saying, well, we've now given you this thing. And this thing is like, it's even more precious because it's not just, we could have hired a bunch of contractors to get it built and whatever. This is now precious. It was one of the few things we could still do, like take care of it and use it. And now they're like, oh my gosh, I, I better use it. And I better show that what I'm asking for. 
Or if you say, by the way, when we give this to you, you're going to have to show how 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 much of impact. It it really forces, I think, a better dynamic. I, I just I find hard pressed to look at things that like, okay, if you would have given me twenty percent more people, we would have gotten all this stuff done. Like, and I, you know, I'm sure some boss is going to see this and be like, great, you know, like I'm never going to need twenty percent more again. But it's just, you, you, it's like building good habits. And then when the growth does come, hopefully those habits stay, you yeah. know, and surely it breeds simplicity. So yes, you have to change, but I really believe you can get great outcomes. And I think every technology leader is actually served by at least one or two periods of like resource constraint because it gives an opportunity to like get your tech, your manager, your tech manager, your product managers, and your stakeholders into a mindset of like, Hey, we should, these are real dollars. You know, every 24 hours is the same 24 hours. The 24 hours when you're in legal review at the beginning of a time frame is the same 24 hours where some poor DevOps person's fighting a database that won't come up on release day. You know, so like it gets people to value that end to end. And I think that's just a really important angle. So like I actually revel in these sort of periods of, of you know, scarcity. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. And I, I, I've actually, um, uh, in times that, that aren't generically, defined as scarce times i've often challenged leaders yeah. to almost um create these constraints yeah. internally um you know def- you have you have x amount of runway and x amount of team and x amount of dollars um put constraints on that yourself ahead of time before you get emotionally attached to the oh but everyone's working so great and i'm so happy and all this Talk about that RI where you want to be before you get emotionally attached. This way, when you get to that period, you can look at those constraints and um, make an informed decision. And that's that's a lot harder to do than when the the conditions are like there is no plan B. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, but it's those periods. You know, again, those periods also coincide with people can go go just go get new jobs. You right, know what I mean? Right. So like it's very hard what, to do. What I will say is like, but those are the people that you want. People like I see what you're doing. You know, I see right. what I'm picking up where you're putting down. Like I think we could get better. And if those people stick around, you just got this like lean, mean fighting. Right. Right. Yeah. And listen, I, everybody's got their own day-to-day concerns and like, you know, but, but I think there's, there's places for that. Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, like create the calmness and allow for like the pockets of chaos. Yeah. One. Yeah, absolutely. So really. So, yeah. So with, with that, uh, sadly we're at time, uh, but this has been uh, a pure joy. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks, and um, yeah, thank you so much, Rob. It was a lot of fun. All right. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take care. Hey, everyone. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe, give it five stars, and more importantly, share it with someone that you think will benefit from listening. And remember, as always, think about the one to two key takeaways that you can apply today to help you and your team achieve your goals. Until then, keep iterating.